Hi, this is Ruth Friedman, and I serve as the Maharat at Ohei Shalom, the National Synagogue in Washington, D.C. And welcome back to my weekly Parsha podcast, Life Imitates Torah. I am getting over a cold this week, so I apologize if I have to stop and cough a couple times and drink a little water. So this week, we have Parsha, double Parsha, Matot Masay, which is the longest double Parsha in the Torah. So if you're going to shul this week, just, you know, you may want to mentally prepare yourself. Um, and the Parsha, it marks the conclusion of the book of Bamidbar, the book of Numbers. And the very last story that is in the book is a follow-up to a story that we've already read in Parshat Pinchas, which is the story of Benot Slafchad. And I wanted to look at this often less uh, attended to ending of the story. But in order to appreciate that ending of the story, First, of course, we have to look in this, at the story in context. So we're first going to go backwards to two parshas ago to the um, original story of Benot Slavchad, which is in Bamidbar chapter 26. Um, well, really chapter 27, but the beginning, the background to it is at the end of chapter 26. So chapter 26 ends with um, Hashem says to Moshe, all right, here's how we're going to do this. We're going to divide up the land according basically to size and bigger groups are going to get more land and smaller groups are going to get less land, basically trying to make everything equal. And the allotment, how you get the land, how it's divided up is going to be according to the name of your father's tribe. All right. Sounds good. Everyone's going to get land according to their, the name of their father's tribe. Sounds like a decent system. Here we go. But Benot Slavchad immediately in chapter 27 introduce us to a problem. They come forward and they stand before Moshe and Elzara Kohen and all of the people who are governing their society at this time. And they say, hey, our dad died and he doesn't have any sons. We don't have any brothers. You've accounted for, oh, well, the land goes to the tribe of the father um, but the, our, we don't have a son, right? So there's no way to do that. Women didn't get their father's name. So the father's name is just going to disappear. And so they ask, can you give us an achuzah, a holding amongst our father's kinsmen? In other words, is there a way to keep this land in our father's name, even though he doesn't have any sons to carry on his name? There's just us five daughters. So Moshe brings their case before the Lord, before God, and God says, Cain benot slavcha dovrot, right? That they are, what they're saying is correct. They're just, all right. They should get an achuzah, a hereditary holding amongst their father's kinsmen. And so here says God, here's what you're going to do. Give their father's share to them, right? Yes, good. They get the land. And then also God introduces more the, the laws now of transmission of how this land is going, of how land in general is going to be transmitted when there isn't a son. So if a man dies without leaving a son, who does the property go to? The daughter. If there's no daughter, it goes to the man's brothers. And if there are no brothers, um, it goes to his father's brothers, etc. Right? So it's a way of, of, of having the land, of creating a chain of inheritance. Now, when we think about this story as a whole, we think of Benot Slavchad as being independent, as advocating for themselves, as being unafraid to advocate for themselves, and most importantly, being successful change makers. 
they detect a problem, they approach the authority structure, they advocate for themselves, and they're told, okay, yeah, you're correct. And not only that, but the system that's introduced as a result is one that places the daughters very high up the chain. If a man dies and he doesn't have any sons, but he has daughters, the daughter gets the land. It doesn't first have to go to every other possible male relative and only the daughter at the very end if there's no one else. No, the daughter gets it right away. That's pretty amazing. And so if we're reading this, we're thinking, wow, like this is... This is a pretty, this is a pretty cool story. This is a pretty straightforward story. We should all feel like if there are systems in which we, from a purely honest perspective, right? They're not being selfish. They're just saying, we want to, we want to continue our father's name. Why should the, why should his name be lost? Why should his land be lost? Because he didn't have any sons. This is a good argument. This is a just argument. And we read this, we say, ah, when you have a good point, when you have a point, that isn't rooted in selfishness, but is rooted really in trying to do the right thing, of course we should be feel comfortable approaching the power structures. And of course the power structures will recognize when it is a just cause and they will accommodate it and perhaps even restructure the entire system or elaborate on the entire system in order to reflect these new points that you have made. And so we walk about this, we walk away from the story feeling really good about ourselves, really good about Benot Safchad, and we can say, look, we have this beautiful story in the Torah of women who advocated for themselves and, and created change. Now, I'm not what I'm going to say now, it doesn't come to cancel everything I just said or negate everything I just said. However, I do think it is really important that we read that story with, as I said, what happens at the very end of the book of Bamidbar, the very end of our double Parsha this week. What happens? Chapter 36. The family heads in the clan of the descendants of Gilad, son of Mechir, son of Menashe. In other words, the tribe of Menashe, where its Lofchad comes from, the family heads, they come and they approach Moshe and the leadership. The same language, Ve'ikrivu, like just like Benot Zalchad is Ve'ikrovna, they approach Moshe and the leadership. They also have good intentions, just like Benot Zavchad have good intentions. And what do they say? They say, okay, God commanded that we give, you know, the land is going to go to Zavchad and his, to his daughters. But they raise a problem. They say, wait a minute. But the Zavchad's daughters, they're not married yet. And what happens if they marry men from another tribe within Israel? Their portion of the land, it's going to go with them. It's going to go to that other tribe, and our tribe is going to lose that land. And so they say, because they're going to take that land with them and off to another tribe, our portion is not being is now being reduced. And you know, implied in that is that's not fair. This is a problem. You just said all these portions go; they're according to population, and now you're saying something's happened where the portion, our portion, uh, Menashe, is going to be reduced as a result. Excuse me. So Moshe uh, speaks to God and God tells him, here's what you're going to say. Then the same language once again. Uh, yes, you guys are right. You're correct. This is, and so your complaint, just like Benot Safchad's original complaint, your complaint is also just. So here's what God has said we're going to do. Benot Safchad can marry anyone they want to 
as long as they marry into a clan of their father's tribe. Uh, the Hebrew, it's a uh, mishpachat mate avihem. Now, a couple of the mafarshim I looked at say, oh, this just means the tribe. Like, it's not saying you have to marry into a specific family or clan within the tribe. No, you just have to marry within your tribe. And that way, no inheritance of land will ever pass from one tribe or another. All of Benot Slavchad, they have to marry within their own tribe. And then we're told that, yeah, that's exactly what they did. These five daughters, they were married to sons of their uncles, right? Married to their cousins, so that the land remained within the tribe of Menashe. So when we think about the original story of Benot Slavchad as being ones about change makers, people advocating for themselves, the comfort of that system. How do we understand this follow-up, this epilogue, to becoming and potentially modifying that original story? And I think that the, the, what, the way I've always read this, and I think that this is probably especially grounded in the fact that this is something I've dealt with in real life with Maharad and, and trying to introduce change into a system that hasn't had this type of change within it until now, is you see that who at the end of the day has to make the sacrifice, has to make the accommodation in order for this change to happen. And that's the daughters of Tzlafchad themselves. They originally were told, okay, yeah, the land goes to you. But then their fellow tribes mates, tribesmen, come and say, wait a minute, but this change you're making in order to give Benot Tzlafchad more freedom, in order to accommodate their rights, that's actually kind of messing up the whole system. And so the resolution is, yeah, we don't want this change to mess up the whole system. So in order to preserve the system, we're going to limit what the daughters of Tzavchad can do, in this case, who they can marry, in order that the system itself is not challenged. And so they think this doesn't really become a story of Benot Tzavchad, a radical story, but rather a story of people who wanted to create some kind of change, wanted to advocate for themselves, at the end of the day, we're told, sure, as long as you guys are able to make some kind of sacrifice so that we're not actually radically changing anything. <coughs> it takes them and that original story of empowerment and really, I think, reduces that empowerment, modifies it strongly to bring it down to a level where they were still within the system, still bound by the system, and they still had to make the sacrifices in order to be able to make change, to be change makers in their community. And in fact, there, there are a lot of uh, midrashim and commentaries on what did Benot Tzavcha do that was so good, right? Because of course, if the story's told in their name and they're clearly positive characters, it means that they were very wise, they were smart, they were tzedkaniyot, they were righteous. And the Rashbam here, he actually says, how were they, it's his commentary on the Gemara that says that the women, that they were, they were so smart and righteous and they knew how to interpret Torah, etc. And what does he say? Why do we know that they were so smart? Because they chose, the Gemara says it's because they, they knew when to speak. And he elaborates. What does it mean they knew when they had, when to speak? They found an opening for what they had to say. I mean, so the Gemara says, well, they came in while, while all the, the leaders were talking about Yibum the lever at marriage. And they said, oh, this is connected. So we're going to wait until they talk about that. This is connected. Then we'll raise our point. <coughs> and so he says, they found an opening for what they had to say. 
and they came in with their story and their claim, and then they left, right? They were outsiders to this baiting, to this legal space. They waited until they had an opening. They came in, they made the argument, and then they stepped away. They didn't try to stay in the space of leadership. They just came and they knew when to remove themselves as well. And this also, I think, is a statement that, yes, speaks to the wisdom of good change makers, but also really then continues to limit the power that Benot Salfad had. They really, uh, the way that they're understood, both by this later story in the Torah and also by the rabbis who interpret these stories, is that they were not radicals. They weren't, you know, overthrowing a system. They were really engaging in remarkable acts of tzimtzum, of, of, of contracting themselves, making space for other people and removing themselves from the story as much as possible in order to create space for those power structures to continue to be in power structures and not for the system not to actually be threatened by them. Now, the reason I think that this is a very interesting story is because it's not clear if that's a good or a bad thing. I think that part of this story really is the realistic parts of creating change. Change makers, people who want to advocate for a system to be more accommodating, more open, frankly, at the end of the day, are probably most successful when they're able to meet those power structures, the people who are used to those power structures, where those people are at. Right? You have to be able to not have it become all about your own rights and what you're advocating for, even though perhaps it should be. That's the right thing to say. But that becomes very threatening for people. And so I think often the people who are trying to be the receivers of the change feel the least threatened when the person comes in and presents it in a way that preserves the respect and the autonomy of the system, the power structure of the system. But the, so in that way, I think this is a positive story because it shows that Benot Slavcha knew what they were doing and they were willing to make those sacrifices for the sake of the system because at the end of the day, it still got them what they wanted, which was to be able to inherit the land in their father's name. But where I think that this also can become a lesson for us, not just a model of good behavior, but also a lesson for us, is that we should also re always remember to check ourselves. Sometimes we are the people who are, don't have the power and we're trying to use, we're trying to advocate that the power systems become more accommodating of us. But sometimes in other instances, we are that power system. We are the people in control. And we're the ones reacting to change makers, to other people who are groups who are coming in and trying to advocate them for themselves. And I think what this story demonstrates is that oftentimes people are most comfortable with change makers when the we don't actually have to make any of those sacrifices in order for someone else to get change, right? So they can get, sure, they can get more rights as long as it doesn't actually threaten anything I have, right? Yeah, they can get more government funds if I don't have to pay more taxes in order for them to do so. And what I think this story exposes is that that's the comfort zone. But we should remember that that kind of change dynamic where I don't, a power structure doesn't have to leave their comfort zone in order for someone else to get power, that's a very limited kind of change. That's still going to keep that person in their little box. And that really it behooves all of us to consider what are my own discomforts? with potential change makers? And is that discomfort coming from a correct place? Or perhaps is it coming from my own discomfort of perhaps having to make real sacrifices and sacrifices that instead of running away from them, I should really actually push myself to be making and see myself as 
having to actually really change my life, perhaps give something up in order to make someone else's better. Shabbat Shalom.